Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, Nick Snaith talks about his move from criminal investigations to workplace investigations and mediation. Listen as Nick reflects on his early days as a manager, his best work experience, the impact of making small changes at work, the kinds of actions a good line manager takes, and his hope that mediation will become common practice in the workplace for the mutual benefit of all parties concerned. Nick Snaith is a former UK law enforcement officer with 26 years of experience in investigative and intelligent-led policing in the UK and overseas. Nick has worked for three UK police forces as an investigator and held a senior investigative role with the UK's National Crime Agency. Nick has investigated on a local, regional, national, and international level offenses of serious and complex crime, including human trafficking, modern slavery, cybercrime, drugs and firearms importations, child sexual offenses, and offenses of violence such as murder and rape. In 2020, Nick left the NCA to pursue a career in the private sector, having been headhunted for a senior advisor to an overseas government. Since 2021, Nick has worked within the private sector managing complex workplace investigations that include allegations of bullying, victimization, and racial discrimination for various public and commercial sectors. He has also chaired employment tribunals, grievances, and appeal hearings. Good morning, Nick, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad that you are here this morning. I've been looking forward to having a conversation. And one thing I'm really interested in learning about is your work history, because it sounds varied and exciting. Could you just start us off by telling us from the first job you ever had as a a wee child, all the way up to the present? Of course. Although as a wee child, the, um, the requisite paper round job and then a, um, and the little things that went alongside that um, as, a, as a young kid. Um, and then interesting that I very much had, um, had a mixed desire of what my career wanted to be like. Um, my fa- and I was very torn because my father was a police officer, a UK police officer. And my grandfather was a, um, he ran a coal mine um, in the village that I'm from. And so, uh, and during that time in the early 80s, when I was at the age uh, around 10, uh, impressionable age, uh, my family found itself in very much conflict because there was massive strikes within the UK between um, the, the coal miners and then um, and the government. And, and the, an instrument which was used by the government at the time in managing it was the police. So the police became very unpopular uh, particularly in the area that I lived, and, and the mining industry was very much um, at the forefront of, of public perception and public minds. So um, I, I lived in conflict between two parts of the family, and then um, and then I found myself at the end of my schooling years um, on an apprenticeship in the coal mining industry, and I was very young, 16, 17-year-old, and I found it hard work, if I'm, if I'm totally honest with you. <laughs> I found it hard work and I thought, I'm sure I can apply myself better in life. Um, not not decrying the hard work that those that, that go down the coal mines and, and the engineering industry. But I decided I had to rethink about my career. And I, I'd always get into sport and I thought, I'll, I'll become a sports teacher. Um, and then one day I was, sat, I was sat with my father talking about his career and he worked in a very, very specific, specialised area of policing. Uh, within covert law enforcement. And he told me what that was all about. Um, and I thought, oh, that's got to be the job to do. So I, I had a total U-turn in my career aspirations. I mean, done an apprenticeship in civil civil engineering, gone back to, to college to get some qualifications to be a sport teacher. I then joined the Metropolitan Police at a tender, year, tender age of 20 years of age. So I moved from the north of England, where I lived at the time, into um, London, which was a great thing as a young 20-year-old um, to live in the capital city. Um, I did four years working in the Metropolitan Police and then returned back to the counties from, from which I'm from. Um, and then I went into um, specialised, uh, predominantly following my father's career in some ways, um, specialised policing, investigations, covert investigations, serious and organised crime investigations. Um, and then I found myself wandering into the counter-terrorism investigation arena for quite a while, 
Um, and then found that I'd got an affinity for training and, and I um and then sort of branched out into training, training in the in the arena that I came from, so being covert policing investigations. And that and I pursued that. I didn't really pursue um a promotion angle at that time because I was very much enjoying the role that I was doing um and the level that I was doing. But then I got an opportunity to work for the National Crime Agency, which it bills itself as being very similar to the, U, the US's um, FBI. Um, so I was, I was lured into the attraction of that. And then I rapidly got promoted within that organisation, managing certain organised and complex crime cases, um, not just nationally, but also internationally. And, um, and then in 2020, I, um, I was approached by an international company who wanted to deliver some police reform project in North Africa, um, and they wanted me to play a significant part in that. So I took a leap of faith um, and not natural, not coming to my natural career ending within uh, UK law enforcement, where I took a, a leap of faith to go on, on this project in North Africa, whereby I designed and delivered um, senior investigating officers' courses, um, wrote strategies, et cetera, et cetera. And that was for about a year, and that came to an end in May 2021 last year. And um, and having probably burnt the candle at both ends, predominantly we work for 27 years. Me and my wife decided that we needed a bit of a lifestyle change, and so um, of that around that time um, last year, then uh, me and my family moved to rural France, whereby my career aspiration or my career sort of direction sort of went towards more the consultancy world. And, and I really then immersed myself into workplace investigations. I could see very well where um, I had some very good transferable skills. Um, and also um, because during my life career, I'd been involved in quite a lot of um, engagement um, activities with stakeholders and individuals um, within the work that I worked sort of lent in towards going in towards mediation as well and applying that with the work-based um, investigations. Um, and that's predominantly where I've been for the last um, 18 months. And um, yeah, moved to, to rural France for a bit of a chill out. And to be honest, there's more work there than there is in law enforcement. So I've predominantly <laughs> been busy in, in the times that I've been. So but that's a little top st- uh, tour really of, of my career there, Mary interested in the differences that you find doing workplace investigations. So you go in and there's been a claim and you go and investigate what's going on and doing criminal counter-terrorist investigations. What is it very similar, different? What, compare them for us, please. So I think um, in my in my working manner and working practice, I very much align myself to the skill set and the experiences that I have had. So using... Um, I very much like structure, um, and and for me, in, a, in an investigation and coming to the conclusion on that investigation, whether or not it's in a criminal sense or whether or not it's in a civil sense in the workplace, it's about the presentation of facts and how they um, and how they can stand scrutiny those facts. And so, I I personally apply those principles that I had over twenty six seven years with law enforcement to workplace investigations, and, and I've. And I think because I've had that experience, I've been given quite a lot of assignments and projects to review um, investigations which have been conducted by those who've got a different background to what I've had. And I do find that um, the strengths of evidence gathering and presentation of that evidence gathering is somewhat less for the, from those who aren't from a, a naturally investigative um, background. Uh, and there's many reasons why I think that is the case. Um, Number one, I think you have to have the, like the the mindset on on. It's not just being a bit of a nosy parker. I think it's very much being uh, one who can um, identify areas to then go and explore and keep going at those areas. But also, I think unfortunately, particularly here in the UK, the industry for workplace investigations um, has has very minimal training for it to to give those people them skills to do those type of um, inquiries. I mean, I, it took me, I, I did, a, when I wanted to become an investigator within the law enforcement, my initial basic investigations course was six weeks. Um, here in the UK, you can't get anything more than three days for an investigators course within the workplace. 
Um, and, and don't get me wrong, within law enforcement, you have to learn quite a lot of legislation and law, but there is still legislation and law that sits within the workplace arena, uh, which justifies the need to, to understand it and be able to work around that. Um, but I, I do feel that from the way my practices and the way that I systematically work does differ to those who aren't from the same background as me. You know, I think that's a really good point, because when we're dealing with workplace conflict, we are dealing with people's lives, right? It's very important to them. They've been accused or they're an accuser or they are a party to. And it's these are defining moments in their life. These are parts of the stories they're going to tell. And they deserve to be treated and investigated with yeah. someone who has the skills to do the job well. Very much so. And I think... When we do the comparison with criminal investigations and also workplace investigations, the the impact of them is very very similar. If we think about an offender in a criminal um, a criminal matter, whether or not they are uh, whether or not it's been a an instantaneous uh, event which has put them into a, a place that they're not ordinarily they they normally um, find themselves in, like a one off in, uh, incident for example, an assault or um, an homicide or something like that, lots of spontaneous actions which are criminal, um, can devastate that individual and the families that support them, you know, because they're taken out of public domain, they're incarcerated into um, the justice system. But I think, um, and if you think of victims of crime, you know, what sufferance they have, what anguish, what um, impact that they have, Throughout their lives, the trauma that they can they can have for on crime and all levels of crime, you know, bring around that that trauma, whether or not whatever it looks like to them, can differ, obviously. And when you look, when you think of like a workplace, a workplace investigation when there's a workplace conflict, it, you know, an aggressor in that, or somebody who again finds himself in a position where they have a conduct which is not. Um, one that is required by or desired by the organisation, which could end in a dismissal. Well, that individual might have a family who are dependent on on them being at work to them to bring an income and um, and provide for a family. And the impact on them is, you know, as, as respondents is what we call here in the UK, uh, the impact on them can also be as devastating as somebody who's sent to prison. And then likewise, if there's somebody who's at work in the workplace who's been a victim, who subsequently doesn't like to be back in the workplace because of the impact of another um, might find themselves due to many many reasons not being able to again hold down a job and, and such like and that again is an impact on the loved ones and, and the people who, who need that support so there is there is massive similarities but the, the response to those levels of um, conflict be it criminal or civil are vastly different vastly different and it's you know, it's not a right place to be, really, I don't think. I think it's interesting, your childhood. Uh, you talked about these conflicts that you grew up in. Uh, how did you deal with that as a, a young person thinking about your grandfather and your father? Are, are you naturally a peacemaker or or how did you make sense of that? It, it was interesting because I was around 10 years of age when the, the, um, the strikes occurred in the UK. And, um, and in the UK, that's a, a transition age from from primary into junior to secondary school um, around that time. And um, it, my, my, <laughs> I, I lived in a village, a small village um, of, it had a, the, the industry, it was the mining industry, it had a coal mine. Um, and the, the police station that was in the village had something like three or four police officers in it. It was a satellite police station. And my father worked in that police station. And due to, rightly or wrongly, the criminal activities that occurred in the village around the time of the strike, there were lots of people who were, you know, not having an income, needed to survive, and, and unfortunately um, found themselves committing crime um, to help them survive. Um, some of the time, my father were arresting the parents of the, my friends at school, and it put me into massive position as a 10 year old where I did find myself being bullied and, and I was you know if you can imagine you know a class of 30 kids and my dad was the only police officer and you know probably 20 other kids fathers were, were coal miners to say I was bullied was an understatement I really really was bullied and uh, you know to put it into context for a 10 year old 
not being able to deal with conflict, not understand what conflict is, and a lot of the management of those situations um, with that naivety and inexperience and immaturity were generally sorted out in a playground quite physically. Um, and, I'm, and I was never one who wanted to confront, confront conflict. I didn't like conflict. I found it uncomfortable if my parents raised their voice, if me and my sister fell out. They're all areas of life that I didn't really find any enjoyment whatsoever. Um, and so around that year, two years, was a very troubled time. But the only thing that really came out of that, to my benefit, is that I grew physically rapidly upwards. And I ended up being one of the biggest people in, in the school. And I was mild-mannered. Um, so as that sort of sort of developed within that year, two years, you know, initially I had to um, try and hold my own within those confrontations in the playground. Um, but it very much came the place, came to the point where my physicality um, actually um, sort of mitigated any need to get involved in any conflict because the other kids obviously knew that they were going to come off a little bit worse than what, <laughs> than what they thought. Um, and and so it was, you know, the, the learning from that from me really is, and I, and I very much found that when I, when I became a uniformed police officer, is that I would enter situations where there were in conflict. Um, but I always used to articulate the fact that my physical size um, may not, may not, may not um, give me an opportunity to to control a situation, but it's by far going to make that situation uncomfortable for the aggressor. So, you know, using the line, you know, listen, if you want to fight, we'll fight, and you might beat me, but you're going to get hurt doing it. And, you know, using language, really, in communications to, to make them think, well, yeah, he's right here. Let's have a conversation as opposed to let's have some physical, you know, confrontation as such. You know, I think there's a lesson for that in the workplace where uh, we're not, you know, sizing up, you know, physically one person over the other, but confidence, right? The more yeah. that we feel confident in our position and being a reflective person, the more that we know what we're talking about and have empathy, the more we can take the barbs of somebody else and not fall into their trap. Yeah, definitely. And it's very interesting, that that concept. And, and, and I really, really support that. And I, and I reflect now when I was in the National Crime Agency and I'd got a young team and there was um, quite a lot of, um, I would say egos, but there were quite a lot of characters who'd, who'd jostle for position. It was like a big clutch of hens, really, trying to sort out some hierarchy. And, um, and, and I were very naive, really, on how to manage that. And I think it was, and I, and I was very much trying to uh, suppress those who were aggressors to leave, and I say aggressors, probably there's wrong, the wrong word, but those who were, who were dominant people. And, and what I didn't do really is um, give the support and allow the self-worth of those who were the more um, timid in the in the team. Um, I, I, I didn't really work hard on that. And I wish that I had, because then they would have been able to um, not necessarily fight their own, battles or, or put themselves into, um, you know, the pecking order as such. But I, th I think it would give them the confidence to really um, manage the situations far better than, than the, what they, you know, unfortunately they did. Um, but, and also, so in doing that, and if I had them, had had them skills and thoughts like to deal with that then, then the team would have probably dealt with its own management far better than me as a manager having to wade through it and try and sort out um, the issues. Almost not self-regulation, because in some ways self-regulation might be deemed as a little bit um, of a harsh, you know, there's got to be some form of outcome, but, but I think it would probably drive more respect, mutual respect, and that's in reflection, I wish I'd have worked harder on that. Knowing where I know now and, and, the, and the skills I've developed and the things that I see having worked in workplace investigations, I can see how I could have being a better manager, should we say, or leader. Yeah, I mean, so many leaders, I mean, you get promoted because you're good at your job, yeah. not because uh, you have gone through a lot of management training and you know how to help people develop and speak into them so that they can be autonomous and grow themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's and that is a massive failing within with the public sector within the UK, and I see that across all the sectors. Is that again, you know, a promotion? There might be some form of promotion process to get people into a into a role, but once they've got into that role, they're very much left either, um, and the only support they ever get is around their subject matter. So they might get an investigators, you know, a senior investigators course. Um, in the police, where they then look, you know, are able to manage multiple or complex crime, but they never ever get any leadership or management training, which are generic about developing individuals, creating high performance teams, driving values, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then the sort of things, and and irony, the irony of it is that when uh, people are going through an appraisal system once a year, they're very much tested against behaviours and values that the organisation wants. But the organisation never gives them the training regarding those behaviours and values. They just expect them to to deliver it, which is massively let down by the organisation. Yeah, absolutely. Because when we think about our expertise and the things that we know, it's very objective. It's very depersonalised. I know how to do this or I don't. But when it comes to... Um, working with people, that's all subjective. It's how we feel. And if we aren't really told how to manage that, how to manage conflict, how to deal with people we either dislike or are tempted to be best friends with, you know, how, how do we deal with all of that? And that's an ongoing process in our life. And we yeah. do need support. Our managers, desperate, especially middle management, desperately needs good support so that they can because management is about people, you know, it's a, that's a good chunk of what you're supposed to be doing. And instead yeah. of bemoaning it, oh, they should know what, you know, they should get it together. I don't need to be doing this. I want to yeah. say, no, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Definitely. definitely. And, and I found it's, it's interesting because the, the role that I had uh, was managing a team, which was, um, was almost high octane. It was very adrenaline fueled team um, where lots of, lots of situations occurred, which, which were very much adrenaline pumping, and and it was um, and it wasn't a male-dominated arena where you know it were with physicality. It was very much mixed mixed batch of people who, uh, from all backgrounds and such like. But the role in pursuing um, you know a serious criminal or, in, or or crime group very much required that unity as a team to be able to perform the best that it could, and but especially when you've got threats to life and you're managing risk as a manager so much, you know, you've got somebody's life at risk because they've been kidnapped and you're having to manage your team to be able to secure that victim and, and save their life. When you're then in the office and you've got, I don't want to work with that person because of X, Y, and Z, or I don't like this. You know, you just think, how, how can people behave like this? How can people have those thoughts when and our day-to-day role is about saving lives and about making life better? But people do. And, 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 as a manager, I found myself at times frustrated of thinking, what are we, what are you whinging about? What are you moaning about? Because we've got bigger things to think about, you know, in reflection, and I mentioned earlier, is that I didn't really understand how these little things impact people so big. And I, and I wish that I knew, like I say, the skills I've got now, so I could take the time to really invest back into my team to get them. I mean, they perform brilliantly. They, they definitely perform brilliantly, but... You know, some people were unhappy at work. And, and I'll, at the time, I was thinking, I could be unhappy at work. This is, you know, you only see this on TV. This is fantastic. But there were issues going off on that team that really, really um, impacted on them people, you know. Who, and, and some of them, in, you know, I speak to them now, really. And they would go and they, they would take those issues home and they would dwell on those issues. And you just think, oh, I wish I could have been better. I wish I, did. I, wish I could have sorted it. Me as well. I mean, hindsight <laughs> growing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, in um, I recently turned fifty, and yeah. I just absolutely love getting older because I get to learn, I get to grow, and I try to have um, sympathy, empathy for my younger self. And I think, oh my goodness, if I had only known, if I had, <laughs> but now I know uh, what I do know, and I can be better now. And then when I'm seventy, if I get to live that long. I'll say the same thing about my 50 year old self. So yeah. we're in this continual process of growing and, and that's all we can do is try to be better than we are today. Definitely. And, and one of the things I'm, I mean, I'm really now getting into, um, which I find massively interesting as a career is, 
is almost redressing those issues that I had myself because I'm really, really interested in leadership styles, um, management, behaviours, all, all that sort of really strong middle management skills that I definitely didn't have at the time. And now I can reflect on those moments where I thought, or in reflection, I think that I could have been far better. It's about now being able to help people deal with those when they arise for them, as opposed to a, you know trying to deal with something at the end of it. I mean, as if, I mean, I'm just I'm not far off fifty, and I've had some fantastic jobs, but I think I would have been there would have been even more fantastic if I'd have had those skills then. And you know, and I think organisations, particularly UK law enforcement, need to really focus on looking at their future leaders from who are young in age and young in service and start giving those them skills because I think ultimately they'll perform better themselves and their teams will be better, their organisations will be better, the public confidence. Will be, you know, it's a massive circle and it impacts on so many people by just getting those little bits right and giving and empowering those people to perform the best they, that they can be, but to get the best out of their staff and for their staff to be happy. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that I'm in this space, but at least I feel like I'm going to be able to contribute to the future of, you know, law enforcement or or other organisations. You know, there's many an organisation who requires, you know, the, them sort of soft skills, particularly around managing people to sort that conflict out, and who don't have the pressures of threats to life. You know, they, they've got the time and space to be able to deal with that sort of stuff because we all want to get rid of conflict in the workplace. I, I think realistically, you know, I, I, I can't really think of, an occasion where somebody would say, well, actually, I want conflict in the workplace. I don't think it exists. People don't want it. They just find themselves in it. Yeah. I like what you said, the little bits, you know, these um, these skills, because I'm very interested in, as you are as well, getting middle management and just management in general. And it's just these little tweaks, but it's almost like um, these tweaks are like the hinges. Uh, and yeah. if you tighten the hinge, then you can, it's all about the direction of whatever is coming off of that. And they're yeah. so powerful and it's not brain surgery. It's pretty straightforward information. And yet, because we're dealing with humans and their baggage and their perspectives, it has to be, um, there are skills that can be learned, but it has to be continually reinforced. People, when they're having a problem, need to be able to reach out to somebody in their organization for mentorship or just to bounce something off of. And it, I think the good news is, they are little tweaks, and that's the frustrating part as well because yeah. people aren't doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I find I think we're we're in an era where with future thinking, you know, what's our performance going to look like? What's our targets going to look like? And in some ways, I think we step away from the here and now. And well, what do we need to address now? What little thing do we need to do? And we all, I mean, we talk about short term, mid term, and long term goals, but there's things that you can do now which help perform later on which be able to hit those targets and they are and they're not massive things and i find as well when i speak to people it's it's a bit of removing the wood so that can this so they can see the trees really and it's a self-revelation um i remember once and um i, I can remember that because of the the type of work that i was dealing in the national crime agency we had to um we had to have a psychological assessment every six months because of the material that we handled. Um, and, and we were always assigned an hour. And everybody, um, th there is a bit of a, a, a mindset here in the UK where they don't want to see a psychologist, they don't want to see a shrink. It's not, you know, it's not the, nobody has them here in the UK. And I think everybody was really reticent or reluctant, shall I say, to, to engage with, with having their psychological assessments. But I remember I used to sit with a psychologist and he'd say, and for five minutes we'd talk about the issues relating to the subject matter um, being the reason why we would have those, those hour slots. And the other 55 minutes was all about him explaining to me why my frustrations were with members of staff. And it was only through him articulating it and speaking it through with me that I was I like, oh yeah, I see, I see what you're saying now. Oh yeah, I, I can be better now. And it was, and he explained to me that my life, and because I'd got set these goals and standards in my life, um, that I unconsciously believe that everybody should meet those same standards, and therefore I put a lot of demands on it on individuals, which then gave demands on me because I wanted it all to, to look the same. 
And what he said to me is, you have to you have to look into the into each individual, identify where their ceiling is. Their their, their ceiling will be personal to them, and your role as a leader or manager is take them towards that ceiling and keep them in an happy place just off that that ceiling, that ceiling, so that they are getting the best that you are getting the best out of them. They are able to perform the best that they can be, but not under too much duress. Under pressure, um, under too much demands, just get them where they are working the best that they can be. And I was like, I wish I wish I'd known that. Why, why did <laughs> you know? I've assigned an hour to talk about something which is you know really impactive because of um, the subject matter. But really, I needed this fifty-five minutes to talk about how I have them expectations of stuff and how I can manage those stuff to get the best out of them. Um, and, and it was just the removing of the woods so I could see the trees. And so it was the little thing, the little chat. Yeah. Imagine if that was in a way mandatory for all managers, a monthly or quarterly check-in where you just run through what you're doing, what, what you could imagine to help people in the organization, what you need, you know, that's Definitely. a pretty simple fix, but imagine yeah. the, I mean, just the return on investment without where people aren't leaving unnecessarily where, you know, people are not produ- producing well because they're mad at Janice for some reason and yeah. you haven't addressed it because you don't know how to address it. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I, I look forward to those six months and I would have had a monthly. And, and like I say, prior to them, I'm quite reluctant just because the stigma that, that sits with it in, you know, here in the in UK in the workplace. But, you know, the benefits that I got from that were fantastic and I, you know, really enjoyed it. And, and in some ways, you know, you just talk about it now, I think I miss having that. I miss, you know, a, a, not necessarily a psychologist, but sometimes a mentor or a coach just to say, you know, I'm, I'm stuck with this or what could I do with this? And for them to just allow me to be able to remove the woods, you know, for the trees. Because, you know, not necessarily that anybody's going to bring an answer to your problems. And more often than not, or, or, or your issues, but more often than not, you probably know what the um, re- resolution is or, or, you know, the solution is. It's just for you to find it. Right. I mean, and that's what we do as mediators, right? We're just a sounding board. We set the conditions and that's what a good mentor or a good psychologist does. It's, they're not yeah. usually supplying. They're usually just helping you. Just yeah. they're nodding their heads, asking a question or two, maybe giving a little bit. Yeah, um, definitely. And interestingly, I've just been I've been delivering a, a, a workplace mediation course last week, and um, and a, a lot of people do ask that question. You know, do you tell them to do this or do you tell them to do that? And it's like you're there to listen. You know, you're there. You're there to structure as an environment where they can work out their issues and you're not refereeing. All you're doing is just reminding everybody that we are humans and we've all got um, feelings and we've all got emotions and we should be respectful of them when we're, when we're trying to work out our conflict. That's how I find it. And, and when you, when you have them conversations with those learners who want to you know become mediators, they're like, Oh, wow. Is, is, is that what it's all about? Yeah, that's all it is because we don't do we don't allow ourselves to do it normally. Yeah. We don't allow us that time to structure and to think things through and have a have a empathetic thought on why are we in this situation. People don't allow that to occur, and the role of a mediator is just to give them that little bit. Yeah, Nick, can you think about um, through your work history? Is there a particular work situation, boss, coworker, place of employment? that you think of as being the best and what was it what was so good about it for you yes uh, I often I have had some really really exciting times in my life in my career and it's and I have you know at times I I have to say it's a bit like the things that you'd see on tv the things that you'd see 24 and all these shows that we see that people love to bits and I have had the fortunate, um, I have been fortunate that I have had some roles like that. But the best times of my career have not necessarily been doing the actual, them particular roles. My actual, the best time that I can ever remember is being on a very small team with three or four individuals who made every day coming to work so much fun 
my line manager at the time, he, he was, he was, there, there were no, um, I never really felt that, and this was whilst on the police, was, I never felt that, although I respected him for his rank and he was my line manager, but he so immersed himself in the team with his own roles and responsibilities. So he, he, he wasn't he wasn't decrying what his role and responsibility was. But there was nothing that I ever encountered that I didn't think that he would be give me the best advice, the best support, and he would roll his sleeves up and come come and get stuck in if if it needed that to be done. Um, and I became a really good friend of his and Digressing, I suppose stories come out of when you think about this. So we're talking probably 2002, so we're 20, are we? 20 years ago, probably now. And um, and I and I was on this small team for for a while, and it was very much a, a um, it was very much a springboard for my career in, in what I wanted to do within law enforcement. And this team was the best that I ever was on, and I got asked to go to a more senior team. Should we say, um, which which advanced me naturally, um, and so I, I took that opportunity. And um, again, you know, the time that I had on that team has, has never been replicated. It was always the best with that line manager. But I then moved away and I moved police forces, and, and never ever saw that line manager again until probably three years ago now, when I got an invite from somebody to his retirement. Or, um, party, should we say, his, re- his retirement presentation. And I, and I s- snuck into that retirement presentation in the back, or, um, probably with the skills I'd learned and, and, and whatnot. I did the covert sneaking. And, and, the, um, and, and the senior manager who was doing the presentation said, um, said, said about, and they called him Phil, this, this particular line manager, and said, um, yeah, I've, I've, had, I've had a chat with Phil and, and talked about Phil's career and, and Phil's done a great job. He's been in this role and he's been in that role. Um, and, he, and he'd got himself into a, a quite a good role within the organisation, running some some big, um, high-profile investigations. Yeah, but the superintendent said, but have you spoke to Phil? Phil said that the best time that he ever had was working with, and he named two or three other, or, or two or three individuals. And then he mentioned me. So my ears pricked up. Um, yeah, he, he really enjoyed. They were the best times of his career because that team was a team, and everybody felt that they would do anything for each other. Um, and it and it made me feel so proud, really, because that was my defining moment, or that was my favourite moment in in my career. And I hadn't spoke to that supervisor for like nearly twenty years, and then I'm at his retirement presentation, and he's he's reflecting on his best time. Was also my best time, and our and our paths had gone so different, but it, it was just that that relationships that we'd got at that time. And I went through a divorce at that time. I I went through a terrible time personally um, at, a, at a young age as well. Um, but that team, and including him as a line manager, really really dragged me through that and made the best of me. And um, and again, you know, spanning twenty seven year career worked all over the world doing work for very you know specialist departments that then it was just a simple team in a, in, a, in a simple police station that dealt with burglaries um, but it was the best time of my career wow isn't it amazing uh, it's unfortunate that we don't know when we're in the best when we're in the best yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet at the time you did in a way because you felt it right that sort of kismet that camaraderie the we are on a team, we're all doing this together, as you said, that you felt that from him, right? That environment that the boss can make makes all the difference. I was just talking to somebody uh, and her boss seems to be the opposite. You know, she takes, her boss takes credit for everything she does. Her boss pacifies her with, yeah, yeah, you can do that. But she knows her boss isn't even going to read the work she's done, you know, and how demoralizing talking to this person, she seems so demoralized. And I wanted to say, you need to look for another job, but I didn't yeah. because it's not, <laughs> it's not for me to say. Um, and she may have just been venting, you know, you never know. We've got to be careful with your advice, but uh, that is, you know, to be able to reflect and, and think about those golden moments in our life and, and why they are so precious to us and 
what we can do as people, sometimes as managers, but just as people in our own relationships to be that light, to be that um, presence for others, which ends up being a present to them and to us. Yeah, definitely. And and when I when I then became a manager myself, some a long time after that, um, and I, I never I, I never was able to recreate that moment and being in that position. Um, and and I remember um, the only time I've ever really got that is or that sort of feeling of where I replicated or I saw somebody's behaviour and I thought oh, I want to be like that is. Um, I went. I went on a um, uh, on a training course, uh, and it was a long training course, twenty years ago. And I had we had a, um, like an instructor or a trainer, and we it were one to one. And this trainer was absolutely amazing. He just he made the fog disappear. He put clarity on everything, and allowed me to learn the skill, a complex skill. Um, and it had got you know on a, on a course which had got a really high. Um, failure rate but he he held my hand and, and took me through that course um and then about five years later i then became a trainer in that same field and i was i was straight away i want to be like this individual who was with me so that i can be so i can so i know that the students that i'll be training will be teaching will have the same thoughts and processes that i went through with that particular trainer and in some ways, there's not. I can't think that there's many managers, other than the one that I described with his retirement presentation, that I've thought I want to be like him. Or, um, which is sad, really. I think that's, you know, I wish it was a hard. I wish he'd got like a big, you know, a big card, you know, a, a pack of cards of all different managers you've had, and you thought they were brilliant, they were brilliant. But unfortunately, yeah. And I've had a lot. You know, I worked for three police forces. I worked for a national crime agency. I've had loads of managers on me here over the years, but there's not many significant ones there. I think I wish I could have been like that individual, and that's such a shame. I think such a shame because I'm, I'm no doubt all those people have been brilliant in one way or another, but there's not many that give me that inspired me to be who I am or who I wanted to be. You know, the power of role models for good and for ill. I mean, we learn so much from the bad boss or the shoddy coworker, and we learn so much from the from the excellent the excellent boss or the excellent team as to what it is that we want and i i've been thinking a lot about what what work is for like what we should expect out of work you know i don't think work is a family um i don't i don't think that metaphor is a really good way to think about it about work you know at ch- work isn't your church you know I, I don't think it should be, you know, what, what should work be and what should we expect? And I think that's nice to have that, those minimum qualifications, but then sometimes we get surprised with just a trans, almost a transcendent work environment. And, um, but isn't that life? We have the highs, we have the lows, and then we have the mundane. Most of it is just normal and we should pray for the normal, (laughs) right? We don't (laughs) want things to go wrong, but then sometimes we get the cherry on top. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I see that, and I see um, in, in like working in law enforcement, and particularly the roles I've had, is that you often often describe it as the family. And and, and my father being a police officer, um, and, and even to the extent that in them days, um, in the late seventies and early eighties, is that um, police forces would buy um, loads of residential houses on the street, and and. You might have a street of 100 houses on that street and 10 of those houses wrote next to each other would have been police houses. And in each and in each house was a family, you know, a couple of kids and, you know, mum or dad or a cop. Um, and, and I were brought up in that environment around the 70s and 80s and I knew all the other kids and we all went to like Christmas parties, we all went to birthday parties and um, and the talks about policing then was very much being part of a family. Um, and that changed, I think, very much by the time I joined the police. That sort of attitude had changed where people didn't really have those relationships anymore and people were more eager to return to their own environment as being part of um, the, the the work environment. And I think there was positives for that. And I think there's lots of 
you know, benefits for that. But I, I do feel at times it sort of lost its unification of, um, of and purpose of what we're all about. And I think in some ways, um, you know, I, I think that probably didn't contribute, that didn't, well, that probably did contribute to conflict where people, where things festered because they weren't able to talk them out over the fence with the next door neighbour who's, you know, worked in that police station and could understand it all. Um, you know, and, and kids growing up, I remember my, you know, seven, eight year, nine year old, um, we'd go on our annual camping holidays and there'd be people who lived three doors down who my dad worked with and their kids. And this, you know, we became a family. We became a cult, a society, should we say. Um, but that, that culture is now um, lost for good or for bad, I don't know. But I, it certainly were, it were good for me as being part of it. And I'm sure that it was good for my father, who was a police officer at the time. Um, and I don't really remember my father coming home and talking about conflict at work. It was more about what the role was and what the role did. But I never really heard about whether or not there were any conflict at work. But I certainly saw conflict at work when I eventually got into that, to, into those roles within law enforcement. Yeah, it could be my my view on work as a family could be that many of my work situations have not been positive. I mean, I've yeah. liked everybody. I've gotten along with people. I tend to do that. Um, but myriad of problems. But I guess a real family, uh, you know, of uh, whatever kind of family you have outside of work is is sort of like that as well. I think I think very much the consequence of being immersed within a family work environment and I've and I'm massively, massively affected me is that you actually neglect the real life family back at home. And I um it, it very much impacted on relationships that I had. Um, throughout my 20s and 30s because I was so immersed and so wanted to be part of the fold within the workplace that it really, really had a massive negative impact on my own life because I just wanted to be at work. And, I, you know, if there were any opportunities to stay at work because there was a demand because of the role and the, the activities that were there, I would always be the first to take them, not to avoid going at home, but my priorities were sat at work and that's the negative consequence, mm-hmm. definitely from it. And it's and it took me a long time to redress that. And I think the defining moment on that is me giving up what I get, what I was going, what I was doing in the UK, and then um, working in North Africa to say, no, we need some family time, and we need some. And I've got a daughter now, and, and my wife's, um, you know, she's retired, and and we needed to have that family time. Coming to France to 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 escape that in some ways has, has been massively beneficial. And, you know, maybe I should have done that years ago and, and put the iOctane lifestyle to bed a lot earlier, maybe. It's it's a balance. I mean, when we think about work-life balance, I mean, everybody gets to decide what they want their life to look like. As long as we realize, I mean, it's better to realize that we are making these sorts of decisions, right? Yeah, so I'd like to close with this question. When you think about the future of work, and your think about your daughter when she's in her, you know, early mid twenties, and she enters the workforce. <laughs> what what do you want to have happened, or what what do you want that to look like for her? What do you hope? Well, I, I know because because of the work that I'm doing at the moment, and it's both, and it's two sides of a, a mindset really. One is the mediation and and bringing people together to be able to talk about their issues being one side and then doing the workplace investigations the other way you are pretty much le- le- trying to investigate a grievance where there's a, a win-lose situation. Um, there's a massive drive to get mediation being the being a successful first point of call uh, within the workplace in the UK. Um, but there's some massive reluctance to that. So there's very much a grievance culture. Um where people are using non-violent communications and words to really make life a mission. But what I do wish that the 
evolution of communication and mediation or, or mediation comes into practice but i think mediation in itself and the continual input for mediation allows a mindset where if people have got conflict to the work that they can with or without guidance start to sort their issues out and not have to go through a win-lose situation because i would hate I would hate my daughter to be um, have a grievance sat over her head where she's not in a position to really explain herself or be able to open that dialogue with an individual to be able to sort out their differences in a respectful way. Because I think, you know, we, we do spend you know, 40, 60 hours at work and we need that to be harmonious. And I, and I hope that the change and shift in how we deal with and confront workplace issues changes towards a more mediation open and transparent way of dealing with it as opposed to a, a very almost like a legislatively like judicial process which I don't think is necessary most of the time yeah absolutely well Nick thank you so much for sharing um, with us today uh, I appreciate it so much you're more than welcome thank you I take care Thank you so much, Nick, for sharing your experiences with us. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services. I'm your host, Mary Brown. If you have any questions or if there's someone that you would like to see interviewed, please let us know. Our email is 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.